evening. Hello? Can you hear me? Yep. Sounds great. How are you? I'm in, I'm in decently good spirits. Oh, it's good to hear. Uh, I'm, I would say, in moderately good spirits as well. Um, uh, it's so, been um, a busy week. Um, okay. But that's, I suppose that's uh, usually the case. <laughs> of course. Uh, and you already mentioned that you'll only be on for about two hours and you have to stop around eight. So I'll yep. try to have it seven. The first half, we could just uh, catch up and a casual discussion, and the second half, we'll try to like, stick to like uh, discussion about certain topics that like I've been sharing with you or you've mentioned in the past that we think would be like intellectually interesting, and just go back and forth to try to cover as much ground as we can. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. Um, do you want to have me or you start with uh, yeah. catching up or? Uh, I mean, you can you can start. <laughs> uh, yeah, sure. We, so yeah, I haven't heard. Uh, heard so I know you like you started classes in the, in the past week or so. And, and the last time I talked to you was about four four weeks ago. From I think. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Yeah. So yeah, this was my first week of classes for fall semester. Um, it wasn't too bad, just because usually first week is syllabus week um so you know as far as like busyness per se it wasn't it wasn't too overwhelming um it was mainly just a lot of preparatory work you know for fall semester i think this week will kind of be the first week where i'm really sort of in the groove of um of work um at least full time with classes and everything else um so you know it's been okay um I think I've been struggling a little bit more with my with anxiety, um, which is understandable. Um, what anxiety? Yeah, with anxiety. Um, it's just, which is yeah. understandable. Uh, so, uh, did sorry, you um, did you, like did you mean a specific type of anxiety? Um, not per se. I don't think. Um, I guess I guess I'm not sure what you mean by type. Oh, sorry, I, I, sorry. I thought I heard uh, you say something in front of an anxiety many to specify a certain form of it. Oh no, yeah, um, no. I, I think I was just being awkward with my phraseology. Okay. <laughs> um, no, I just I just meant just generic kind of anxiety. Oh, generic um, anxiety. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, just a little bit there. Um, and it's not like there's one particular trigger for it. It's kind of one of those things where it's just a bunch of different things, all of which like on their own are perfectly manageable. Um, but when they come together, it can be a little overwhelming. So, you know, learning to sort of like take a step back and, you know, see it more objectively or just see it for what it is, is helpful with that. Um, so I guess the biggest update is, um, you know, I've been today, actually, earlier today, um, I mentioned, I think the last time that we hung out, that I had been participating in a Zoom group, uh, a reading group over Zoom, I should say. Oh, yeah. Um, we were studying Henri Corban, the French Islamologist. Um, he is, uh, you know, at least 
intellectually speaking, he's, uh, I would say, very much adjacent to people like Jung um, and Rudolf Steiner and other sort of like theologians and mystics, um, you know, of the mid uh, 20th century. Um, I guess historically and intellectually speaking, that's probably where I would situate him. Um, and so we've been reading, you know, one of his uh, texts, um, you know, analyzing a mystical prophet within the uh, mystical Islamic tradition known as Sufi. Um, and so we've, we've kind of been doing that. And so our Zoom group, we finished the book about two weeks ago, but today was a very special occasion because um, there's uh, an author who goes by the name of Tom Cheatham, who's written a large number of books about Henri Corban. And, you know, I, he's probably the person who's done the most today to translate Henri Corban's work, um, you know, to a lay audience. So to people who don't have a background in Islamic studies or, you know, Christian studies or, you know, French or Islam or, you know, all these other very like esoteric things. Um, and so the author, uh, I guess, is friends with the person who has been running our discussion group. And so, um, you know, they came and we had a two and a half hour uh, Q&A session with them earlier this morning, which was wonderful. Um, it was very, very exciting. And it was great to be able to talk to somebody who has a lot of expertise in the area um, and who, you know, is also very kind and thoughtful. And we all, there was just a small group of us. I think it was only five of us or six but we all kind of exchanged emails with the author. And so, um, you know, I'll probably start small correspondence with him. So that should be uh, pretty neat. Um, so that was really exciting. I'd kind of been looking forward to that all week. So I was pretty happy about it. Um, and it was a very interesting and somewhat far out, bizarre, esoteric and intense conversation, which is kind of all the things I love the conversation so you know i was i was pretty thrilled about it so yeah you know beyond beyond that uh i'm just plugging away at school and my classes and uh getting into my thesis proposal um you know and then i'll jump into the work of doing my thesis yeah very nice mm -hmm. did you end up um going out to celebrate with john for his birthday yeah, well, we didn't go out. Um, we went over to his place, um, decided to be a little more socially responsible and got really drunk. <laughs> um, and it was a fun time. Um, we ended up watching a bunch of comedy sketches on YouTube. Um, we played darts for a little while. He has a dart room in his bedroom. Um, and we chatted and talked about life. Um, as you know, John has now officially started his uh, employeeship as a Google employee um, and he is feeling very much overwhelmed um, because it's a uh, you know a challenging position um, but you know he's he says he's never been more excited and interested in anything he's ever done so you know it, they kind of go together um, so that's where he's at right now I guess this Monday would be the start of his third week I think uh, at Google if I'm correct maybe four. I think now it would be the start of this quick week. So we hung out at his place and just had a good time and chatted and all that stuff. Um, 
is he happy for the time being that he can stay in Las Vegas while still working there? Yeah, you know, he said at first he was a little bit disappointed because he wanted, you know, the independence and the opportunity to, you know, get his own place. And he had planned to move in with someone actually from Google, but the Google has a system where they will match you with new employees uh, when they recruit you to an area, so that you can recruit an employee to like be a roommate for you. Uh, like it's an internal system the company provides, which is pretty neat. Um, and you know he had planned to do that, but he says he's grateful for it because it's great financially. Um, so he's starting to get into investing now, um, and you know this, uh, you know, is very helpful because he's going to save quite a bit of money, and it's going to allow him to take all the extra dollars from his salary and pay off his student loans um, from undergraduate, which he should be able to do sometime next year um, or maybe even this year I don't, I don't know how much he has exactly but um, you know and then the spare money that he has he'll be able to start investing it for retirement um, and other things like that and so you know him and I have been talking a lot about that and we each kind of set up our own system for uh, retirement and investing um, you know um, because we want to sort of be strategic about our investments um, basically our default assumption is that there will be no form of retirement assistance of any kind when we retire. So we're just going to act as if that's the case, um, try and prepare as much as we can for it. Uh, um, do you, you said you have like some, I think I, like last year you told me about that, that you were already starting to plan ahead for that um, bleak possibility by um, having some um, I forget what it was specifically. Do you mentioned like what was your strategy to plan ahead for that? Yeah. So last year when we talked about it, it would have been a Roth IRA that I had opened up via Fidelity um, Mutual Freedom Fund. Um, basically, it's a, an account where you put money into it. You can withdraw from it once you're 59 and a half years old, um, and it. They basically Fidelity invests the money that you put into the account for you. When you're younger, they make risky investments, um, and when you're older, they make more and more secure investments. Um, you know, so by the time you retire, um, usually you have a return anywhere between two and six times what you initially put in in terms of like the principal amount. Um, and so I had one of those accounts. I opened that one up actually at the end of 2018. Um, but then I'm also opening up a money market account, which I will use as a rainy day fund um, and also a savings fund for buying a house eventually. Um, you know, because I would like to have a house eventually, just as far as like I'd like to own a place as far as property goes. Um, and then I'm going to open up one or two other like retirement accounts, uh, you know, to invest money in for, for savings and whatnot. Um, so, I mean, it's, I guess the overall strategy is, is I want a Roth IRA, a 401k, um, and a money market account. It's kind of the idea. So that way I have current savings in case I run into an emergency, you know, in the present and I need to withdraw money quickly, which is what the money market account is for. Um, and then, uh, you know, also the other ones for the longer term. Um, actually, the, 
this is probably really the most exciting news of this week. This week, I officially paid off my student loans from undergraduate. Really? Yeah. I didn't take many, so I only had 7,500 loans from undergraduate. You know, part of that was a big part of my motivation for going to UNLV and living at home, so that I could afford to pay for most of my tuition at UNLV since I was working. Um, so, you know, I had 7,500 to start with, uh, which I guess, you know, I didn't start making payments on until 2018, but between now and 2020, I've been able to pay off the 7,500. So I'm pretty happy about it. Yeah, that's great. So as far as updates go for, for me, those are the most major ones. Um, trying to think if there are any that are immediately pressing. Um, but I'd love to turn it around and ask um, how have things been since the last time we met up for you? Um, how's work and everything else? Um, fairly similar. Um, although, um, recently I'm glad now that past past are starting to enough new people come into my courses that were able to get things hard heads up that we get they get allowed to actually have weekends off again. So yeah, the past two weeks I had both weekends both had my weekend Saturday and Sunday, so it's been nice. Mm -hmm. And um there's this one crazy story that I feel like sharing. Um, yeah. where one there was one Saturday where I we were gonna go to work. This was like yeah two weeks ago. Uh-huh. And um I was going I was commuting with me and my dad because we, uh, we both worked there and we both gonna work that day. And in the morning there was this really, really like ridiculous um traffic jam. Yeah. And the eye uh through the in the gorge. Um, I think you, you remember, you remember what the gorge is like? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've driven and, the gorge a few yeah, times. Yeah, and it was, here's what was so bizarre about it, though. Initially, we thought it would take about, it might be a few minutes, but, uh, and I know, I think I recall, like, after 10 minutes, we, it got moving, like, just a few feet, and then we stopped again, and then we did not move again for a ridiculous amount of time. After a while, we realized that we're not going to get to work on time, and it started to go well into the morning. We usually, our shift starts at six, and we get up. We get up at three a.m. Our shift starts yeah. at six, so we try to leave around three forty in the morning and get there by around five thirty or five thirty-five. You thought, but none that completely flew out the window. It was so it was utterly ridiculous how long we were there for, and we didn't know why. We no no one had any clue. And so, so you never saw an accident later down on the road or uh, anything get, else that would have slowed it down. Um, I'll, I'll get to that. So this was okay. There was backup for like at least like at least a mile. I, I was it was just so utterly how, how much cars were backed up for all these trucks that were just stuck. And eventually, eventually we noticed that like there was, like there was kind of what appeared to be smoke off the side of the road. Uh, like in the distance, so we just assumed it was a wildfire, and we saw helicopters mm -hmm. overhead. So we seen that there was just for whatever reason it was, and they had to put it out. And um, 
I think eventually, like by around nine, I think. I'm around that time. I'm not sure exactly. They what? What eventually? <laughs> we, what eventually happened? What we eventually end up doing to get out of there? That we and and I swear this is true. So the car was at the very front. We, but we just eventually figured out this was what we were supposed to do. So. Mm-hmm. You know how there's naturally like uh, that in that direction, like the um, I-15, like north. Like you, there's two lanes of cars going both going north, right? So mm-hmm. that's obvious. But we eventually, what we what eventually happened, and what we noticed, and we figured out was that to get back, there we made up the cars and make a third lane opposite side of the road uh, in the opposite direction. That was yeah. yeah. The, the only the only way we could we could get out. Yeah. Wow. That's crazy. I don't think I've ever uh, been in that position before, where I had to participate in making a new lane. <laughs> yeah. It, it was this ridiculous bounce, and it was obviously immensely really narrow. So we had we're very careful about it. I don't. I'm glad my head was there because if I did it by myself, I would have been very nerve-wracking. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Definitely. Yeah, and I feel especially bad for the truck drivers, the semis, and because they were stuck there for. I, I think I read later they were stuck there for like thirteen hours. Thirteen hours. Yeah, and. Wow. Yeah, and so we had to go back the opposite way and eventually go through. I, I don't know exactly what it was. Some kind of the exit and go in, in the reverse direction to get back on the right lane to on the I south to get back home. Mm-hmm. So they get back on the road in the in the right way. So yeah, that was utterly ridiculous. And um, uh, and we told our supervisors about it so that we wouldn't be able to get to work. So yeah, that was unfortunate. That was really unfortunate. And yeah, yeah. And it turns out later, I didn't know this until like I thought I read a, about it. Is that so? I thought that it was just a regular wildfire that stopped everything just because it was a really hot summer and maybe the air was truly dry and so timber ignited for just because well, that's just the world we're living <laughs> and mm-hmm. just, actually there was actually a specific reason where apparently that there was a a, a long haul truck that I guess had that for whatever reason that had an accident that fell over that was Road and the fuel just ignited and caused the whole thing to spark in flames, and that's wow. and that's why everything was stuck for so long, and that, and why it was so hard to like clean up, I guess. And fortunately, I, I guess the driver of that truck was able to escape, and and he's fine, and well, he still had to go to the hospital, but he made he was he survived it, right? But yeah, that sort of thing. We have never gone through before, and my dad says he's never really gone through before. Like he's been commuting to go to work in St. George for a year, for a couple, of years, for a couple of years now, since like 2017. Yeah. Never had to go through that before, so yeah, that was wow. Yeah, yeah that was a really ridiculous experience. Yeah, and you know what's even more <laughs> like ridiculous? Uh, I my, my, I tell you about my uh, friend Hugo, who also is from Mesquite, who also at the lighthouse, who I used to commute with. Mad can with because he has the same ship as him. 
Like he's yeah. he's so dedicated that even after all that, even after we were we were able to get away, that he ended up taking the alternate route through Beaver Dam on the old road in order to get in York so he could still get to work. Which, wow. which we did not do because we knew that because all the other cars that want that need to get to York taking the Littlefield path would the bad road will also get really busy so we figured it was wasn't worth it so we just called it a day and go home. Yeah. Yeah. But he was but he actually went through it. That he actually was willing to do all that. He go through Beaver Dam, try to get the young road, go through like Santa Clara and the other like that the other parts of like St. George to eventually get back on the I think North Freeway to get to work. And I don't know how long it took exactly by some of the coworkers that he didn't that they saw him clock in around noon. We can, yeah. So that's commitment. Yeah, I know. I mean, he's been working there for like at least three, like well over over three years now. I think, at probably three and a half mm-hmm. point. So I can respect that. Like I told him, we told him like it doesn't make sense for him to put up to like have to put up all that just for like a half day because the shift is from like six a.m. to six p.m. So like that, like it does not make sense to me why he would go through all that just for a half day. But, mm-hmm. obviously, but yeah, that's is that's dedication, or just or force, or it's just a stubborn force of habit. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, sometimes those can look very similar, I suppose. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, that, that's a pretty crazy story that I thought I definitely feel like sharing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What day? What day was that? Um, I can let me check. Wait, I, I, I'm pretty sure it was the um, let's I'm pretty confident it was the 14th, no, the 15th of this month, yeah, yeah, just last week or a week or so ago, yeah. No, wait, wait, yeah. wait. wow, no, no way, wait, not a week. Well, that'd be more than a week. Oh, uh, well, <laughs> how much time we know? It was the 8th. The eighth. Oh, okay. Yeah. 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 That is a crazy story. I, yeah. I don't know if I've ever been in a traffic jam like that. Yeah. I think the worst thing I ever had was actually um, the first time I went to Auburn. Um, I, I road tripped and we were out on the outskirts of Texas, between the border of Texas and Louisiana, and there was this major pileup car accident where it looked like one car rear-ended another car, which then caused another rear end, which then caused another rear end, which then caused another rear end. As a domino and, effect. Yeah, it was a domino effect. And then, the, but there were multiple clusters, clusters of dominoes stretching for about a quarter of a mile. Um, so, you know, I don't know what would be initial um, uh, cause was, but it caused, you know, this enormous chain reaction that probably damaged at least 15 vehicles um, that I counted. And I think we probably sat, you know, on maybe a mile and a half of highway for about two and a half hours <laughs> <laughs> before we finally cleared. Because we were still able to get through because only, it only ended up causing one lane to shut down. And it was a two-lane highway. Um, so, you know, we were eventually able to get through, but it just was a lot slower. 
Um, that's probably the worst thing I've ever seen traffic-wise, yeah. um, which I guess tells you how privileged I am growing up in Nevada and instead of LA yeah. <laughs> or New York. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, no, that's a neat story. Um, yeah, I think... Uh, you know what's especially funny? Is that... What? Technically, I was told that that day was only supposed to be a half day for me. I wasn't supposed to be. I wasn't supposed to be there for my whole shift, just half of it, till around noon. That's actually funny. <laughs> yeah. I, I, you I could have actually just shown up. At, you could have just done what your friend did. You know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, this is, that was just like no. Like right, <laughs> with, with all that shit for just a half day. Like, come on. Yeah, no, I hear you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Indeed. So, um, mm-hmm. that's the only other one. I'm sorry, off the top of my head, I can think of that moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm only trying to think if there's anything else worth mentioning. Um, Oh yeah, so you so you're saying that you were saying before uh, you'll think you'll try to watch the Legend of Korra around winter break. Oh yeah, um, so that I totally forgot. Thank you for mentioning it because I um, had an update there. I just finished season one this week. Um, well, I should say this weekend. I watched it pretty much all yesterday and Friday. Well, I mean, no, I mean, I didn't spend the whole day. It's, you know, short episodes, but. Uh, yeah, I finished season one, and I actually really like it. Um, obviously, I don't think it's as enjoyable as Avatar The Last Airbender. Uh, I think everybody's sort of in agreement with that. Um, but because it's not as enjoyable, it doesn't mean that I dislike it. It's a show I still really like. Um, I think a lot of the criticism of the show, I don't know, I get the impression that a lot of it is just based on nostalgia for Avatar The Last Airbender. Like, this doesn't feel the same, you know, it doesn't feel as magical or it's as guiding or as emotional or deep as Avatar. Um, and, and, generally, and generally speaking, I agree with that, but I don't think, you know, that diminishes the value of Legend of Korra. Um, but I've only seen the first season, so, you know, the last thing that happened for me was, uh, you know, uh, Amon um, or Noah Talk, you might say, uh, took... Uh, you know, Korra's powers, her bending abilities, but then she connected with her spiritual self and restored her bending abilities and, you know, connected to the Avatar state for the first time. Um, and, you know, they overthrew him on, he ran away. Um, and that's sort of the, uh, you know, that was the ending of season one. Um, so that's where I'm at right now. And I really enjoy it. Um, I think it's very interesting. I like Korra as a character. Um, um, you know, I, I don't know, I think she's a compelling lead, um, or protagonist, um, you know, a compelling female protagonist in particular, so, I don't know, I like it so far, and, uh, I'll give you more updates as I continue watching, I probably won't get to watch any during the week, this week, but I will probably see if I can catch up on season two, um, you know, during the weekend. Alright, um, so, I, okay. Did you um, finish Bojack Horseman? Did I finish what? Bojack Horseman. 
Oh no, I haven't done. I kind of stopped Bojack Horseman. I'm in season three right now. Um, I just haven't like. I kind of just stopped one day and I haven't gotten back into it yet. I eventually will. Um, you know, I, I said this before the last time I think we talked about BoJack. Uh, the problem I have with the show is that BoJack is just so hateable that it makes it painful for me to watch, <laughs> even though it's a good show. <laughs> you know, I just hate him so much. I'm like, Ugh! I feel like I'm always yelling at the television or the computer screen, really, because I'm watching it on my phones. But I suppose that's. Yeah, I mean, but it but is the point. Just, you are kind of supposed to hate him. And <laughs> and this something that's important about the show that makes it very well beloved and respected is that he does eventually get held accountable for his acts later down later in the show. So keep keep yeah. And you'll, he'll get and you'll see him how he has to respond to, to having to take responsibility for his actions. Oh yeah, yeah. No, I definitely can see a way in which they're gonna, you know that will become a more prevalent part of the show for sure um so yeah no definitely i'm, I'm with you there um i'm looking forward to that but yeah um that also will probably have to wait for the weekend as well <laughs> <laughs> um so yeah i mean i'm trying to think i feel like my memory for the last month was so bad. I guess really since the last time we hung out, the main things I was focusing on was finishing summer semester. And I really only had about a week and a half between the end of summer and the start of fall. Um, the summer for me ended the week, I think August 8th. Um, you know, and then fall semester began last week on the 17th. Um, so you know, mainly it was just writing the final term papers for um, one of my classes and then, you know, final exam for another one. Um, so, I don't know. I don't know if I have a lot of, a ton of personal updates. I guess, you know, I've been getting more involved in these online Zoom communities that are sort of, you know, focused around a lot of like psychological, existential, philosophical, and theological. Um, you know, uh, dimensions. Um, so, you know, I have this reading group that I finished with, you know, about Henri Corbon. Uh, in another two weeks, I'm part of another group who's being run by the same guy um, to read uh, uh, another text called Religion and Nothingness by the Japanese philosopher Keiji Nishitani. Um, and that, that's a book I've already read. Um, but I'm looking forward to reading it a second time because it's very dense. There's a lot of things I probably didn't understand on my first read through. So I'm grateful for the, that chance because I'll get to read it in a group. Um, so that should be um, a somewhat edifying experience. I've lately been getting into Discord um, because a lot of these people are on Discord servers um, for a lot of these interests. And so I've been making some friends there as well. Um, you know, there's a lot of people out there doing some really interesting work um, at the intersection of, you know, psychology, uh, cognitive science, neuroscience, um, and meaning making and, um, you know, existential and ecological psychology. Uh, it's really neat because I'm seeing a lot of connections between disparate fields, each of which I have an interest in for different reasons. And so, you know, I'm very much in a position, intellectually speaking, where I'm starting to connect 
a lot of uh, different traditions and lineages to one another and get them into dialogue. Um, and that's always very, very exciting. Um, you know, and I think to a large degree as a researcher and as a scientist, that's a big part of, well, not even just as a scientist, as a, as a um, somebody who's interested in um, ideas that matter. Um, you know, a big part of my approach to that is getting disparate fields um, to talk to one another, you know, so that the wisdom can be shared, you know, between all the traditions, um, both scientific and theological. Um, so, you know, I don't know. I, I think one of the thing, one of the reasons why I was excited, I think, initially, and this will probably lead into a more interesting conversation in a little bit. One of the reasons why I was so excited by the emergence of something like the IDW, um, despite all the valid criticisms of it, is that it seemed to be sort of putting a label on what I perceive to be a renaissance of people that are interested in ideas, um, having long form discussions about them and engaging with each other through the internet um, that I think really previously didn't exist um, in the mainstream in our culture. Um, you know, at least, you know, in a way that was, you know, garnering a large number of people. Um, you know, okay, that always has its limitations because the larger the crowd of people that join your intellectual pub, uh, the more you have to carefully moderate, um, you know, and delimit conversation and, you know, um, you know, give people, you know, who have more expertise, a little bit more of a voice. Um, and that can always create complications and difficulty. Um, so I'm excited about all this stuff um, because to me, it you know, it sort of suggests uh, people have described it. This is not my term, so I'm not taking credit for it. Um, but I can't remember who coined the term, but people have described it as a meaning renaissance um, taking place in the culture at large. And I think, you know, I mean, maybe not at the culture the whole culture at large. I mean, that might be too much of an exaggeration, but there's definitely uh, a developing, I would say, meaning renaissance going on, which I think is, you know, really interesting and fascinating. And I think it's an important response to a lot of the existential woe that it seems to be increasing in, certainly at least in the Western developed world, um, you know, existential and psychological aids and mental illness and mental health problems. Um, and so, you know, insofar as there's a vibrant intellectual community and culture concerned with existential issues um, and philosophical and psychological ones um, that's in dialogue with the best science on the subject. Um, you know, I think that's a wonderful thing. I'm happy to, you know, participate in that and, you know, lend my talents and abilities to developing it, you know, and seeing how it unfolds. Um, it's an organic process, so no one can really say where it will go. Um, but hopefully it continues to go in a positive direction um, and it becomes less enmeshed with the political. At least I hope it does. Um, I, I think that was sort of the mistake that the IDW made to a large degree was becoming too embroiled in politics. Um, but that's just me. So uh, that stuff is really exciting to me. And that's kind of been occupying a lot of my attention lately, or at least a lot of my spare thought. I, I'm having a little trouble hearing you. Um, 
was going to say that since on the you're you're cutting out just a little bit. Okay. It just. I was just saying um, that I, I can understand why that would connect to you the way it does. It does yeah, I think the challenge with a lot of the conversations that happen in that space is that beyond just a wide diversity of opinions, I would say there's a wide diversity in the quality and the care of individual interlocutors in that sort of like intellectual media cultural space such that there are some interlocutors who sort of occupy that space who are not very careful or cautious or especially qualified to speak on certain issues, who frequently speak on those issues. Um, whereas there are other people in that sort of space or perhaps adjacent to it, um, you know, who, who are, uh, I would say, much more cautious and careful and academic and rigorous about the way they present their ideas and how they communicate them to their audience. One thing that's interesting, um, so I've talked to you about John Verveke before and I've sent you a couple of videos um, of some of the stuff he does. He has a lot of conversations with people who are, I would say, adjacent to the IDW. So he's had a couple conversations with Jordan Peterson um, and people who are interested in Jordan Peterson and are friends with him, people like Jonathan Pajo and uh, Paul Vanderclay, who's a Christian pastor, who's commented a lot, and Jordan Peterson, um, you know, and a few other people um, who are, you know, thinking deeply about philosophy and psychology and its relationship to meaning in life. Um, but, you know, if you ask John Verdeke about the IDW, he's very critical of it, and he says he doesn't identify with the IDW at all, like he doesn't consider himself to be a part of it. So there's this interesting space I've been getting into that is like IDW adjacent in that sense. Um, it's connected to the IDW, but the members of, are not, you can't even say members really, because it's not a, like there's an organization, but people who are in that space, um, you know, like don't generally identify it. Some, some do, some will say like they consider themselves IDW, but other people won't. Um, and so, you know, how we draw boundaries around these sort of like group identities that sort of organically emerge, you know, is a complex issue for sure. Um, but I just think that's interesting, you know, that there is that element that's sort of adjacent to the IDW. And I would say in terms of my time and attention, that consumes most of it. Um, you know, I do listen to Eric Weinstein quite frequently still. So I guess probably of the IDW crew, that's probably the only one who I listen to on the regular. Um, you know, in terms of his portal podcast, but you know, beyond that, I don't really listen to the other ones. Occasionally, Brett, but usually it's only when he's talking to Eric. Right. Yeah, um, can you repeat that one more time? Because I heard most of it, but you cut out, like, you were just a little distant for part of it, so I want to make sure I heard you right. Um, is there a link I've sent you in the classroom? Pretty relevant to what you're talking about. 
Yeah, there's a couple actually that are relevant here. I'm trying to decide which one to start with. Um, well, I did read your email response you sent this morning um, where you talked about the video I sent you, the interview with um, David Fuller from Red Bull Wisdom and uh, Eric Weinstein. Um, I liked your response quite a bit and I really appreciated how thoughtful it was. Um, because uh, I really enjoyed that video and thought it was very fascinating. Um, I think I'm going to bring up another article you sent me and I will send you an email response um, to respond to the email you sent because I think that one would be better for an email response um, just because, you know, then I can kind of go through point by point. Um, let me pull up article I think the one that I wanted to talk about was the satire piece that you sent me which I loved called from the Atlantic called beware of Faxman um, this was by Anna Lowry um, do you remember yeah yeah pull down your mask liberate your consciousness it's time to meet Faxman um, Faxman was interesting because when I was reading the piece, it seemed like she put together like four or five people from the IDW and just took tropes from them and put them all together and amalgamated it into one person called Faxman, which I thought was really interesting. Um, you know, so she talked about like, you know, being anti-social justice warrior and, you know, against the, the woke crowd and the sheeple professors. Um, but then she also talked about, you know, being a venture capitalist who has analyzed all the data, you know, um, but then also being, you know, kind of like in the Joe Rogan sense, somebody who's obsessed with, you know, fast, you know, fasting and optimization and all these like other things like the supplements and, you know, with the working out and all the lifestyle stuff, um, you know, and then um, she also referenced him having a college degree and a great resume and secret insider knowledge. And you listen to people like Eric Weinstein and Brett Weinstein, and they often talk in those terms. Um, you know, both of them have somewhat famously come out um, very critical of the peer review system, more or less arguing that it was uh, an invention of the 60s and that it was a bad decision for science uh, on the whole, and that it would be better to just have skilled editors um, you know, do the revisions for articles rather than, you know, a committee of your peers, um, which was the previous system before peer review sort of came into existence. And so, so before peer review, basically, uh, the editors of the journals, um, who are the people that make the final decision for publication were the ones who would communicate with authors to bit more or less accept or reject articles or to, you know, give revisions. So it would be their journal editors. Part of the reason peer review emerged was practical because as fields became more specialized and, you know, more and more papers and articles were being referred, um, it, you know, it became impossible to have a team of editors at any journal that was large enough that they could possibly handle, you know, all the articles that were coming in, you know. And so like that system isn't really workable unless you just, you know, have enormous editorial boards for journals. Like you just have a large staff of full-time um, journal editors, you know, which, you know, probably isn't really feasible given the way that science is structured right now. 
Um, so, you know, that's a big part of the reason peer review, you know, emerged. But, you know, also too, um, you know, there are good philosophical reasons for it, you know, um, having other experts evaluate, you know, your work is important, you know, in terms of like getting the best quality products, you know, published. Um, so, you know, I, I thought that was kind of interesting, but both, yeah, both Eric and Brett are somewhat suspicious of peer review, you know, because of the way in which many academic communities are very, very, very small. And so that can introduce politics and grievances and grudges, uh, which can bias peer review. Um, you know, you know, there's the case where you have an, a small niche academic community that sort of gets siloed into its own echo chamber and isn't able to tolerate ideas outside of the mainstream of the discourse within the community. And the idea is that, you know, peer review is a system that actively suppresses that, uh, you know, and that you, you need, you know, sort of disagreeable and, uh, um, how do I put it, uh, heterodox, so to speak, thinkers in every field, you know, to challenge the existing or dominant paradigms, you know, and that peer review suppresses that, you know, that was more or less, uh, you know, somewhat of a summary of Eric and Brett's comments on that when they had a conversation about it. Um, you know, she also pointed out too in her piece, sometimes Faxman is in the IDW and sometimes he hates the IDW. Sometimes he's in the alt-right and sometimes he's a critic of the alt-right and you can't place him on the policy spectrum. And I, and I like that because it's definitely a common trope in a lot of the conversations uh, where you have people who play the role of tax fan, who, you know, have political opinions and biases that they would rather not acknowledge as political um, when they are, you know. Um, you know, she has this part where she says tax man's politics are in fact non-politics, you know. Um, she hates politics, you know. Um, even though, you know, constantly engaging it. <laughs> Um, so I don't know. I liked Faxman. I thought it was relevant to a lot of your criticisms about the IDW. Because um, my reading of those criticisms is more or less that, you know, even if a lot of the concerns that the IDW are raising are legitimate concerns, they're often doing it in a very superficial and somewhat thoughtless and careless and, I guess, intellectually lazy way. Um, and then that contributes more to the uh, ossifying of discourse than not saying anything at all, you know. Um, at least that's a one, one interpretation of a lot of the critiques um, that you've given me. Uh, you know, and it, one thing I like about it is that there is a way in which a lot of the discourse is very uncritical in terms of its certainty and confidence and perhaps arrogance in its own uh, perspective. Um, I get sort of the impression from a lot of IDW thinkers of a certain kind of arrogance, um, you know, that, you know, isn't humble or cautious enough about uh, trespassing on territory, that, you know, which the people don't have expertise in. I think in the science world, we call that epistemic trespassing, you know, where you take things from your area of expertise and then try and apply them unilaterally to other intellectual areas and you do it in a way that is sort of intellectually lazy um, 
you know, and doesn't do justice to the other fields that you're addressing. Um, I like that term, epistemic trespasser. I think a lot of people in the IDW are guilty of that, of trespassing in that sense. Um, you know, so I, I don't know. I really enjoyed that piece, and it was really funny. You know, um, but it, you know, I think it sort of drove drove the point home for me. Did you have any other thoughts or things you wanted to add about that piece or anything I brought up just now? Um, no, I, th- I think you got a pretty good handle on it. Um, I'm glad that you appreciated it the way you did. You did. Um, I did think it was funny that right at the end, she said, you get the sense that Faxman was the captain of his debate team. Um, especially, you know, because I was. <laughs> I was like, oh no, I've been called out. <laughs> yeah. But actually, I didn't think of that in relation to you. But I'm glad you, <laughs> that you made that connection. Yeah. Um, also, the fax man recently lost 15 pounds on the keto diet, correct me up. Yeah. I was, um, it, yeah. It's, ama- it's amazing how many people in that IDW space are pushing this carnivore slash keto slash paleo diet. It's just, to me, it's incredible. I just think it's really funny. Yeah. <laughs> those, those kinds of quirks are always funny. It's just interesting to kind of connect. Yeah, I felt, well, it's funny because like, well, I guess it was Peterson who was the one who really like, popularized it. You know, he talked about him and his daughter, who both do that. They hold this autoimmune stuff that causes them to be allergic to most other foods, um, except for meat. Um, and I kind of feel bad that they talked about it in public because I feel like they just started a whole thing that I don't think either one of them necessarily wanted to be like blow up into like a thing, but then it did. <laughs> you know, maybe they did, but I don't know. You know, I yeah. feel like if I had a really bizarre diet and I was a public intellectual, I don't know if I would talk about it. <laughs> I don't think I'd mention it. If I had some really bizarre diet or something, you know, um, I'd probably just keep it to myself. <laughs> yeah. You know, lesson learned, I guess. I don't know. I mean, learn from the mistakes of others, right? Yeah. I mean, unless a company, unless a company that's related to your very own. Um, niche diet sponsored you I mean I don't see why you would have any good reason to bring it up yeah well you know well that's you know that's kind of my thought I mean I guess Michaela had a blog so you know she wanted to talk to Joe because you know Joe is friends with Jordan you know Joe, Joe Rogan so that's how she ended up on his podcast and that's really I, that's where it really took off you know she has like a whole community of carnivore diet people they call it the lion diet now I think yeah. Which I think is somewhat amusing. Do they even have a dating platform for people <laughs> on this diet? Like, I'm not kidding. Like, straight up, they have a dating app now. If you can, like, match with people who are also on the carnivore diet. Yeah. I mean, that's... I, like, I don't know. Like, how much... I saw can... the ad for it, and I was like, peak 2020. <laughs> 
did you try using it just to see what would happen? See what who what, what, what kind of people you would meet? I you know I didn't and I, I I felt bad because well I only, I thought about it I'm not gonna lie I did for a minute um, but then you know I was like well you know I don't know I don't want to be a troll because I'm not on the carnivore diet you know <laughs> yeah I was too nice yeah um, okay I will tell you something funny it's unrelated but it kind of is. Uh, the only w- dating website I've ever been tempted to sign up for it, just tr- to troll is a website called ghostsingles.com. Okay. It is, I kid you not, it is a dating website for ghosts. Um, okay. <laughs> right, right, exactly. No, not even joking. You can actually sign up and make a profile and you can meet other people who are ghosts or who claim to be ghosts because you're not meeting ghosts you're meeting people on the internet claiming to be ghosts so it's a dating website where people can go on the internet pretend to be ghosts and date each other as pretend ghosts Um, Um, it's a real thing I don't even know how I found out about it but somehow I did and I was really tempted I and I may still do it I don't know I was but I was very tempted to make a profile and just find out like who the hell is on this website (laughs) Yeah. I don't know that too. Like, who puts in the effort to make to make to kind of develop that to design that website? Like, why? What motivates people to do that? Like, just is do they just have too much time on their hands? Is it is it fun? Is it funny enough that it's worth putting the the time to code it, to design it, and develop and whatnot? I'm curious, like how. Like how, like how, like legit did it look? Like did it, did it look as if there was actual effort put into making it seem, um, like how professional did it look? Uh, not super. I'm going to text you a link to this website. Okay. And you can look at it. Um, I mean, it doesn't look totally unprofessional, but definitely not that professional. <laughs> And you know, I, I wonder about it too. I mean, I, I I sometimes I think it was one of those things where like a guy and his bro were hanging out and they were really high. And somebody was like, what if you had a dating website for ghosts? And then it was really funny and they laughed about it. And then they thought it was so funny. They were just like, yeah, like, like let's do it. <laughs> All right. Oh yeah, and you can go up. The age count is infinite. Right, so they have a thing that says, "I am a blank ghost seeking a female ghost between the ages of 18 and blank," and you scroll down, and it goes down forever. So you know, as old as time. There are a thousand plus. I guess it goes down to a thousand, and then it goes a thousand plus. So you can date a two thousand year old ghost if you want it. Okay. Chat now. Other single ghosts are waiting. All right. <laughs> okay. You can see why I'm yeah, so tempted. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, it doesn't look. I mean, it looks okay. It seems like something was designed like back in. Oh yeah, the copyright is in 2009. So, yeah, the maybe it was. Yeah, yeah, it looks a bit old-fashioned. Yeah, maybe it was designed just as a joke. Like maybe like it was an April Fool's joke or something, just for heck of it. I honestly my 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 hope is that the creators of this website have made money 
off of it. Yeah. I hope that they have made a lot of money off of it, like enough that they have that as their career. Yeah. Like, that is my Indeed. hope for them. I don't think it's. I don't think it's probably true, but I, you know, one can hope. Yeah. Um, of course. That was, of course, a, a tangent, but one I thought you might appreciate. <laughs> There's lots of great dating websites out there, and some are yeah. pretty funny. I'm sure. I'm sure. Farmersonly.com. That was another one. If you're a farmer. Yeah, I'm sure. Did you find one for um, for like graduate students? Oh, there probably are some. I I found one. I I can't. I'm trying to remember what it was called. I think it was like elite something, like elite singles or something. And they marketed it as a dating website for like hyper professional people. So like, you know, people with PhDs and law degrees and, you know, uh, people at the top of the business world, you know, kind of like one of those like, you know, wealthy, rich, successful people dating apps. but I don't know if I found one specifically for grad students. Um, I feel like that dating app would just be um, Zoom sessions where people get together and drink and cry. Uh, <laughs> for right. graduate students. You know, uh, I think that would be the, the dating app. That would be the structure. Oh my gosh. All right. I don't know. Yeah, I, that might be something to look into maybe. I don't know. You know, especially since I'm yeah. so remote. Um, All right. But, you know, I, I've been thinking about getting into online dating a little bit more, but none of the current platforms I think I really like. Tinder, for obvious reasons, I'm not really looking for yeah, course, hookups or casual relationships. And that's of course, most of, of what people are looking for on Tinder. And the structure is superficial because you're just swiping pictures. It's similar what, for, yeah it's, it's kind I mean, of designed to be all crucial. online dating is like that yeah 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 i mean that's the point of tinder so you know and the thing is like other apps like bumble and okcupid are still a lot like that too you know but i don't really like the traditional ones like match or eHarmony. so i don't know i might see if i can find another one for specific interests but, yep you know. <laughs> Um, yeah, um, I'm trying to switch, switch, switch gears. Sure. Quick. Um, did you have something else you wanted to say? No. Yeah. Feel free to. Say. Uh, okay. Um, yeah, just something that's still also lighthearted, but uh, that I I remember that I shared with you. Um, did you ever watch that video at, at essay by by YouTuber named Nando Vimus about um, Artemis Fowl and like the bizarre editing and like the kind of how he has kind of conspiracy theory behind it? I did. And I thought it was amazing. I, well, so I, at first I was a little reluctant because I don't know anything about Artemis Fowl. Like I never read the books or saw the movie. So I was kind of like, well, I don't really know anything. Um, but then I watched it and he does a great job at explaining it. So you don't really like, need to have seen it or know anything about it. And it was awesome. I loved that video so much. <laughs> it, it reminded yeah. me of John Oliver. Like it definitely had those vibes because it was kind of like this investigative journalist kind of like thing that he was doing mixed with comedy and i yeah. love that genre like like comedy meets investigative journalism is incredible yes yeah. <laughs> i know um, and, and like just like wow like and it's funny because like now i feel like every time i watch a new movie i'm gonna be like 
paying attention to like those things. Like how often are we seeing characters like physically speak with their mouths versus speaking off screen? Like now every time I see, it's gonna ruin movies because now every time I see a movie, I'm gonna be thinking about that. I mean like, can I see their face? Are their lips moving? <laughs> yeah, I thought that was know, awesome. This was <laughs> Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you liked it. It's awesome. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it was really clever. Uh, but, like, honestly, like, that, uh, I believe it, though. Like, I don't know. I'm not much of a conspiracy theorist. But, like, that was, I don't, I don't know, man. His arguments were pretty compelling to me. Yeah. <laughs> like, I totally believe that something like that probably happened. And I really hope that at some point in the future, there comes a point where some people who are involved in the making of that movie come out and confirm or deny whether or not this was actually true. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if it ever will, but I hope. One can hope. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad yeah, you like that. Yeah, thanks for bringing it up. Of course. Um, it was it was quite entertaining. Um, I started watching a couple of his other uh, videos. He's got some good stuff on his channel, so it's another yeah. subscription on the YouTube Premium, of which yeah. I'm still internally grateful for. <laughs> of course, yeah. Yeah, I'm glad you got into that. I'm also glad I've, I've kind of, in the larger sense, I've gotten you into that sort of like um, content of like film analysis, film and TV analysis, and that kind of resonated with you. Yeah. Well, one thing I guess I should mention this because it's a recent development for me, which um, you know I didn't mention earlier. Um, you know, the week between um, the end of summer semester and the start of fall, I took that week off. Um, I should have, I could have been doing research work that week and ordinarily that's the expectation, but for my own mental health, I decided to take it off and I've been reading fiction again um, because I had stopped reading fiction for a super long time. You know, it had probably been at least a good like year or two before I'd like read any fiction at all. Um, and so I started getting really into fiction again and I, my friend John had a bunch of recommendations. So I was just kind of working my way through them. And so, I don't know, the more I get back into fiction, the more I realize how much I love it and miss it. And so I don't want to ever get away from fiction again, you know, even though I'm going to need to be reading a lot of nonfiction for grad school and beyond, um, I still want to keep uh, a fiction going. Um, and so, you know, I have a great appreciation for fiction, both in the book form and the movie form. So I'm always happy to, and I, and I love to analyze it, you know, like analyze yeah. literature and all those other things too. Yeah. You know, symbolism and things like that. Yeah. Um, um, speaking of which, I need to send you some stuff by Jonathan Pajot. So right. I'll probably send you an email. Um, I'd love to talk to you about some of his stuff. Because what he does is he does uh, uh, symbolism in movies. So he takes pop culture films and he analyzes the symbolism. Um, and he's got some pretty interesting stuff there. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that'll be something um, to talk about in the future. Of course, indeed. Um, let's see. Oh yeah, also those videos that um that I sent you on J.J. Abrams and Star Wars: Rise of Skywalker from Pat. Those, those were, were those yeah. also a lot of fun. Too? Yeah, those were fun. Um, they were a little bit triggering. I'm not gonna lie. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I I have a friend on Twitter. Um, who wrote a number of reviews about Star Wars, The Rise of Skywalker, and the title 
of her most popular review. She's a writer on Medium. The title of her most popular review was, um, did you ever hear the tragedy of the rise of Skywalker? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Just a great reference to uh, Palpatine. Yeah, did you ever hear the tragedy of Darth Vegas? <laughs> yes, yeah. Yeah, I got it. <laughs> <laughs> the tragedy of the rise of Skywalker. Um, yeah. But yeah, no, I liked those videos. They were pretty good. And it was interesting, like, the, you know, kind of like peeking in a little bit under the hood, you know, to the motivations of J.J. Abrams and, you know, how he was influenced and why and how, you know, Rise of Skywalker might have emerged and became what it was. Um, it did make me really sad to hear him talk about the earlier script. Because the earlier scripts, even though it was not perfect, sounded so much more fun than The Rise of Skywalker. Yeah. That was what was really tragic. This is just like, no, we could have had something so much better. Yeah. Just knowing that that was an option at one point. Yeah. And we lost it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm curious. Have you, have you heard of the film Book of Henry? The Book of Henry? Yeah. Uh, this is related. Um, I promise, but have, have you heard of it? I, I feel like I have. Is that the really sad one where the kid gets cancer? Yeah, he's like a genius kid, but he gets a brain tumor. I don't know if he actually dies or yeah. not, but that's... Yeah. I've seen like yeah, clips, so, but yeah, I've never seen so, the movie. Yeah, so I mentioned because I think Colin Farrell directed it, and I think the fact that it was critically and financially um, unsuccessful, that that's the a major reason why um, Disney kind of tur- um, was turned off by him and decided to move on with someone else's director. There are obviously other reasons, probably other reasons, but I think that from I keep reading how a lot of people feel like that was a big part of it. Yeah. What, so when did that come out, The Book of Henry? Because um, I thought that was an older movie. And let me look. Give me a second. But, but yeah. I could be wrong about that. I don't yeah. actually know when it came out. Yeah. The, also, did you watch the one about J.J. Abrams' like filmography, like and back in like the one from 2018, and how, like how like the kind of broad strokes of his work is, how he he seems so, like someone who's works best with nostalgic material, like starting something, starting like creating movies, yeah. but never being able to like finish them in in a real way. Yeah, Felicity, right? You yeah, watched all 84. Uh, what is it? All 84 episodes or something? Yeah, something like that. was the thing he said in the movie. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I did. I thought that was interesting. I mean, Star Wars Rise of Skywalker was like a nostalgia crap fest. Like, wow. Yeah. You know, like, oh my goodness. You know, every other, like, scene, you know, you had, like, just four or five different, like, callbacks that were not even a little bit subtle, you know? Yeah. Which, which bothers me a little bit because. I like callbacks, you know, like when they're used sparingly, you know, so like using them too much is annoying, but I also don't like them when they're used really like in your face, where like the movie is screaming at you, like, remember, 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 you know, it's like, okay, yeah, I remember, <laughs> you know, I, like I prefer it when it's a little more subtle, you know. Yeah, of course, of course. So, yeah. Well, I don't know. It makes you feel more special yeah, if it's course. subtle because it, then it's like a whisper or like a secret uh, between uh, you and the uh, yeah. uh, film director, right? It's like, ah, yeah. Yeah, so, I see what you did there. So the book of Henry came out around like June 2017. Oh, wow. That's actually still really recent. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that makes more sense then since it was like more recent. 
Indeed. Yeah. So it, this, so the, his kind of video essays kind of help articulate like some of the reasons why it was so frustrating. Like, do you feel like it was on a deep, like, like the larger, like how it connected to the larger franchise? Like, did it kind of help like put those feelings into words? Did it help you put those feelings and frustrations to words better? It gave me better words than the words I had. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> that's probably that's probably how I would put it. Um, yeah, I mean, I had my I, I had my own opinions from the beginning, I guess, but you know, it definitely, yeah, it definitely gave me a, a more thorough, I don't know, more precise, I guess, yeah. way of articulating it, you know. Um, and, but you know, I like the analysis from the perspective of you know nostalgia, and you know, it, I would love to. It'd be really interesting. I kind of wish I could be friends with J.J. Abrams. You know, yeah. like good friends, like close friends, and I could take him out for a beer, <laughs> and I could be like, "Hey, bro, so like, what was up with Rise of Skywalker? Like, what were you? What was going on? Like, what were you thinking? You know, like, just pick his brain. Like, I kind of wish I could do that. Yeah, you know, because you could, like, if I if you interviewed him publicly, you know, he wouldn't give you the same answer uh, he would if uh, you were like his bro and you were out with a beer. So I want that. Like, yeah. I want, I want that. Like, yeah. maybe somebody who already is his friend can wear a hidden camera yeah of course. and record, <laughs> record. yeah okay yeah uh, yeah you know yeah. yeah that sort of thing um oh yeah actually this is an... i just have to accept i'm never gonna get it just... of course of course i'm actually i was gonna say so you have disney plus right i do yeah did you ever watch? Well, I don't. My mom has it, but okay. you know, I steal hers. <laughs> okay. Did you ever borrow? Did you, did you ever watch the making of Doc? For that, uh, for those films like uh, Rise of Skywalker or Last Jedi, it, they're on Disney Plus. I haven't yet. Uh, the only one I've watched is Into the Unknown Two, so Frozen Two, the making of Frozen Two. Okay. Um, I love that. That was wonderful. Um, uh, yeah, my friend Tracy that. yeah my friend Tracy recommended it she loves Disney and she said that documentary made her realize that her dream job is to be a storyboard artist for Disney like if she could have an ideal job that would be it yeah indeed um, I, I look for that stuff because like because Tracy loves story whenever I talk to her about movies she's like super nitpicky about all the plot details and stuff yeah Indeed. So, um, so I, have, I haven't watched the Star Wars ends yet, but I think uh, as far as those documentaries go, they're probably next on my list. Well, glad to hear that. Um, mm-hmm. what was I? Oh yeah. So, something that I, a legitimate question that I do want to know about is this, that um, sure. when that well, not not necessarily that from you specifically, just like in general, that I think we both want to know when did they make the decision to bring back Palpatine? That was. That, but I think that if we knew the answer to that, I think that would help solve a lot of other questions as to how the story ended up the way that it did. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. I do wonder about that. Well, let me think. Do we remember the date that the first... Well, I guess it doesn't matter. I was going to say the date the first trailer was released. But, of course, the decision would have made, been made way longer, you know, before that so that, yeah because the thing is interesting about films like guys to kind of wanting to look behind as to the production history as to how 
they made the large decisions for those scripts because mm-hmm. so I was uh, missing to a discussion with Patrick and a friend of his they were talking about that and they were saying how you know kind of real thing that's really unfair is for all the flack that um, Ryan Johnson got for The Last Jedi in the way he uh, wrote Luke's character. The funny thing is that kind of a lot of the script for that film was pretty much already set in place by the time he started. Um, it was like those kinds of big broad strokes were already set up for him by the time he got on. So like he kind of had to come up with a good reason as to why Luke was so far away from everyone. Why is he? Why was he by himself? He had to come up with a reason plausible. So he kind of just did the best he could right. with those constraints. And so a lot of the reaction from like fan community to that obviously was obviously extremely negative, but also was kind of unfair and just un- and not really realizing that he was just working within those constraints that were already established for him. So a lot. Of, so that's something to think about it. And it's how the production for that was fairly smooth and there wasn't that much like strong wrangling script. It was actually went pretty smoothly with what was already with what was already being built. And how a lot of people kind of commentators kind of feel as if a lot of their story decisions and Rise of Skywalker were kind of Disney's kind of reaction to the to the, all the fan backlash the last Jedi. So that's why they were so desperate to play safe. And it was just really frustrating that they had that they felt that they needed to hand her so hard that they were too that they didn't weren't willing to fall through on like like big story developments that were introduced in Last Jedi, and they seemed like they were basically trying to retcon it. <laughs> so yeah, just very unfortunate. Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. I definitely think I definitely agree. Like, it would be so fascinating to know when they decided Palpatine was going to make a reappearance. Um, you know, it's interesting. I remember thinking after seeing uh, The Last Jedi, you know, I was talking to my family because we went and saw it together after, like, the movie. And I remember saying something like, um, you know, I'm very, very perplexed as to, you know, who will really be the villain in the finale because they just really didn't set Kylo up to be the villain. I mean, like, they ended The Last Jedi, you know, with him on the dark side, so to speak. But the earlier films, just the whole, his whole character, you know, archetype was really set up to be like a redemption archetype, you know, like from the beginning, like, you know, like you just, you never got the vibe that he was the ultimate bad guy or the ultimate villain of the saga. And to me, it just, you know, after seeing The Last Jedi, I was like, it just doesn't make any sense for him to be like the big bad guy, like the final villain that they face, you know? And then I was like, but it would also be weird to just introduce a random one, like a random new villain, like in one movie, you know? But I guess they did. (laughs) I mean, at least it wasn't completely new, you know, but still, you know? I would have rather, if they were going to introduce, like, a random new villain, you know, into the Rise of Skywalker, I would have rather had it been, like, some other Sith Lord in the canon, you know? Like, I would have rather had them bring back Darth Plagueis. Like, Darth Plagueis never actually died. (laughs) Or something like that, I don't know. Or they found some weird way, the Sith loyalists found some weird way to resurrect him or something with a ritual. You know, and maybe they had to get Ray and like Kylo there because the power of their force bond could resurrect him. You know, I mean, it's basically what they did with Palpatine. 
what you should have just been playing it since it was out the blue. Yeah. Or some you know. Indeed. Or something like that. I feel like that would have played better, even though it would have been more random, I guess. Just because it wasn't set up yeah. in the plot. Yeah. But Indeed. but you know, yeah. I don't know. There wasn't so much you could do about it once once the creative direction was was taken away from having Kylo be the the main villain of the finale. Of course. Um there's a suggestion I have read about uh, in pop which is saying that it would at the very end it would have made a lot more sense if Ray had decided to call herself Ray Organa instead of Ray Skywalker because in, in the within that universe mm-hmm. I would have it would have made more sense for it to feel inspired by Leia's leadership and also the history of her family with like her father well the man who raised her being Bell Organa and how her family, the Organa family within those films, if you actually look at it, or has more honorable history than, than Skywalker family. And how she didn't really only knew Luke for a few days and how it doesn't make sense for her to feel that connected with him in that way. She's purely out of, and it just feels forced in a way that doesn't really feel convincing. Do you think, so yeah, do you, do you agree with, does that resonate with you? Do you think it would have made more sense? Yes. For it to... I, I do think Ray Organa would have made more sense. Just like, because she didn't really have much of a relationship with Luke, you know, relative to Leia. Um, for me, uh, the thing I would have liked would have been the Ray, just Ray, if she had said yeah. that. Um, yeah. Just because, like, that had already been foreshadowed earlier, you know, and it would, and it was like, thema- it would have been thematically, like, you know, in keeping with the idea, you know, that like your background, like your, you know, inheritance isn't the most important thing, you know, your genetic lineage, like it's about who you are rather than, you know, who your parents or grandparents were. But, you know, that theme was pretty much undercut the whole way through the rise of Skywalker. So, you know, of course. You know, as far as one film goes, it's not really, you know, that yeah. different, I guess. Of course. Um, but no, I do like Ray Organa better than Ray Skywalker. Have yeah. you seen? I I don't know if I can find it on YouTube. I can try and look it up after this. Uh, it was a TikTok video I saw. And I think someone shared a Twitter version of it, where it's it's a video. It's like a minute long. It's called "Why All the Star Wars Movies Have the Wrong Title." Oh yeah, I've, oh yeah, I've seen that one. Yeah, yeah. I remember seeing that a few weeks back, and I thought it was really funny. Because you literally could play mix and match with all the titles and get better titles for each movie just by switching them around. <laughs> yeah. You know, call uh, the Rise of Skywalker the Phantom Menace and call the Phantom Menace the Rise of Skywalker. You know. Indeed. Um, which makes me where we're going. So I don't know. It's, it's, it's very strange. There's a lot of apes there. Um, um, can we switch? Do you want to switch gears? Yeah, yeah, I guess so. I yeah, guess so, the, the end of so anything, so any of the other stuff that I've shared with you recently that you feel like discussing? Yeah, um, a couple of things. Um, so this is something I think is really funny. Um, you sent me an article, uh, about the um, Unity Task Force 
between Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders. Yeah. Um, the thing I find amusing, so not, not I, I thought I didn't think the article was funny, but there's a connection I made that was somewhat amusing. Um, Brett, I don't know if you've heard of this, but Brett Weinstein, you know, had an interview with Joe Rogan where they talked about, you know, the politics of the day just a couple months ago. And uh, Brett Weinstein put forward this proposal for a new, basically a new system of presidential elections in the United States. And he called it Unity Principles for 2020. And so when you referenced the Unity Task Force, I first thought you were talking about that. And I was like, wow, I'm surprised he's referencing that positively. <laughs> and then I clicked on the article and I was like, oh, wait a minute, that's not what, this is something different. <laughs> Uh, yeah, the Brett Weinstein one was interesting. Like his idea was that uh, we should have a, a system where you take somebody who is like you nominate someone who is a center left candidate, and you nominate someone who is a center right candidate, and you get them to join forces. One of them is the president, the other person is the vice president, and you elect them together. Um, and so you just generate different teams of center left and center right people um, who team up with one another and you sort of elect them in that way uh, rather than the traditional two-party system that we've sort of adopted. Um, like that's sort of his proposal. Fred Weinstein said we need a revolution without the cost of a revolution. Um, I don't think his idea has really gained a whole lot of steam but it was at least kind of an interesting proposal. Indeed. Yeah, isn't like no. Sorry, you were saying. Yeah, I was gonna say. No, you. Historically, wasn't like originally. What wasn't that similar to what they did? Like in the early like American history of presidential elections, isn't that where like the the uh, the loser? I think it's closer like, to that. Yeah, would become VP. Like, and obviously that was yeah because because that's not really a sustainable way to have, to have leadership. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah. there are some problems yeah. with that, but uh. Um, it's yeah, it's closer to that nature. I think it's sort of uh, um, well, how do I how do I phrase it? Um, you know, I think that in Brett Weinstein's model, the big thing is that you know you're no longer nominating or electing by party, so it sort of disregards the political parties. Like it's you know, the, as far as presidential elections are concerned, like you know these like teams of candidates sort of find each other and then run and you know the specific rule is that you know each team has to be one person has to be center right one person has to be center left you know it's the idea like ideologically speaking but it's like you know there are problems with it like how do you even determine that right like do they all just take a political compass test you know like like you know what I mean like it's, it becomes a little complex time being the most like Sorry, say that one more time. Um, for that, I mean, I, I would stand by the idea that the most really successful somewhat Oh yeah, ranked choice. Yeah. Yep, I'm with you there. Um, 
and they'll be technically the first state to use it for presidential elections. This and that just comes at the moment. Just don't permit that more states switch over to that central run. Mm-hmm. Uh, environment by far the most to help make culture culture-wise more open, more ideological and complex ideas that go up as ideology. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm with you. Um, I I did enjoy the the article a lot. Um, you know, because I, I wasn't familiar with the Unity Task Force before you sent it to me. Um, and I gotta say, I think this article actually probably did more uh, to convince me uh, to vote for Biden than just about anything else I've read encountered so far. Um, I mean, other than Trump's pathological behavior or DJT's pathological behavior, um, you know, um, the fact that Biden's administration is so open and willing to adopt, you know, pretty progressive um, positions is very encouraging to me. Um, so, I'm you know, it makes me a little bit more excited for a Biden presidency. Um, than I probably was prior to reading this article. I mean, I'm not thrilled about it, per se, but, you know, um, definitely still a much better alternative than our current administration. Um, And so, you know, I I just wanted to let you know that I appreciated the article, and I'm glad that you made me aware of that, that I wasn't aware of it before, and I think it's pretty important um, and encouraging as well. Um, you know, there was another piece that intersects with this that you also sent me from Vox about climate change, like two different strategies that are being utilized by climate change activists. Um, and one of the points that was made in that piece is that there really isn't a right-wing solution to climate change. Um, there have been people on the right who have argued that the right needs to adopt uh, conservative solution to climate change like or that the right needs to put it forward and like you know craft it as a coherent piece of policy but you know even despite those voices on the right it hasn't happened and it doesn't look like it's going to happen at any time in the near future um so for me i mean that's a big motivator in terms of my decision you know my typical voting patterns which usually end up being you know progressive or left-leaning candidates um you know, insofar as the right refuses to take climate change seriously, I, they probably will not be getting my vote. Um, you know, they might if they were able to, but I don't know. You know, it doesn't seem like that's the case. Um, so, thank you for sharing that with me. I really appreciate it. Dude, that's, that's the kind of thing I enjoy. I, you know, I think myself, I kind of wish I would have, I could kind of teach class on these sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. You know, as you were just saying that, I, I had an idea. I, I'm actually curious, you know, what your thoughts are about this. Because, I, you know, it's something maybe you could do, um, you know, as a way into that, like, space. But, like, communicating with other people about it, you know. Like, uh, something similar to the Zoom groups that I've been participating with. Um, you know, the guy who runs my... Uh, the Zoom group I've been participating in, his name's Jared, and um, he spends, you know, I think he's applying for graduate school at the moment, but he's currently unemployed, so he has a lot of uh, free time at the moment, and he's been spending a lot of his time uh, reaching out to people in a wide variety of social media spaces who are interested in a lot of these ideas, and then making connections and community with them, and then building these, like, online discussion groups through Zoom and through, you know, other platforms like Discord and Facebook um, and Twitter. I don't know if he actually has a Twitter, but, um, you know, to discuss these ideas. And one thought that I had would be something like an institutional deconstruction reading group on Zoom or something. Not saying that that's something you, you necessarily should do or you should do it in that way, but it's an interesting idea. You know, I, I just I bring it up because it might be something to think about, like maybe uh, you know, that could be a way into the space is you sort of reach out to people, you know, who, who seem to have similar interests in that area and uh, see if you can, I don't know, create maybe a Discord server. Actually, I could see that being really uh, a really good way of, of getting into it. You know, Discord's really effective for that kind of thing. Um, so I don't know. That's a That's an idea that, you know, I don't know if that interests you or not, um, but it's something you could consider as a way of, you know, because you, you probably would be able to find people who could regularly engage in these conversations um, who you could make community with. And, you know, I've been doing that in my circles where I study theology and psychology. Um, perhaps you can do it with uh, institutional deconstruction. Heck, if you if you made an institutional deconstruction Zoom reading group, I'd sure I'd join. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, um, there's you know that's I I will say that is one of the great things about this pandemic. Um, you know, it's definitely given people a lot of the offer a lot of opportunity to connect with people across the world, um, whom they would have never connected with without you know time and space to engage in virtual workshops you know one of the things i did earlier this year in may i joined a virtual workshop uh discussing philosophy and neuroscience so like neuroscience and philosophy so like philosophy of the brain and i listened to a talk by a neuroscientist you know talk about the philosophy of representation in neuroscience that was hosted by italian psychologists (laughs) in italy you know (laughs) And I would have never, you know, had an opportunity to attend or participate in something like that, you know, if it weren't for the uh, virtuality of the pandemic world. So, you know, I don't know. It's a neat space and there's lots of opportunities for growth there. So, you know, if it's something that interests you, something to think about. Yeah, 
definitely. Our Zoom group is usually on Sundays um, in the afternoon or in you know early afternoons usually when we meet. But time zones make that a little tricky sometimes. Um, our Q&A today was at noon and we had some people coming in from London at eight who, you know, where it was eight o'clock at London time in the evening, you know. Um, so it was kind of neat, you know, having people from all over the place. Sorry, uh, at eight o'clock, the thing that I'm yeah. like the cutting off at eight. Yeah. Um, no, it's not like a formal appointment. Um, I um, had already, well, it was one of those things where I had a couple of friends that I was going to chat with that I'd forgotten. I'd scheduled to chat with them on Sunday evening. And then I realized and I was like, oh no. Uh, so I just moved it back. You know, we were originally going to start at seven, but then I just moved it back to eight and decided to talk to you at six. So that way we'd still get at least two hours in and, you know, I'd be able to do both. Um, I feel like uh, I sometimes neglect to write down my schedule as much as I should, um, or at least sometimes even when I do write it down, <laughs> I neglect to look at it before I make plans again, <laughs> which I need to get better about doing because otherwise I'll double book myself. Um, yeah, a couple things. Um, so I liked the article from Cracked that you sent me, uh, the four reasons the news feels like a crapshoot. <laughs> I like how honest Cracked is. They're very blunt with their language. Um, I never knew about the Fairness Doctrine that they talk about. Um, well, I guess the Mayflower Doctrine was what it was originally called, but they replaced it with the Fairness Doctrine. Um, and it's interesting uh, the way they connect that to like how talk radio sort of evolved. Um, you know, and it seems like talk radio has gotten worse over the years, like the Rush Limbaugh types. Um, you know, I like, like more and more unhinged, um, you know, uh, which is a problem with those kind of kinds of echo chambers. Um, so it was good to learn about the, um, about that because I didn't know about it previously. Um, I'm curious what your thoughts are because um, they talk about like ad revenue killing local journalism, like just not having enough of it. Um, and um, I'm curious as well, I'm trying to think about how to phrase this. Um, you know, in the IDW space, there's a lot of talk about like legacy media versus like this, you know, new sort of decentralized podcast space where people are just, you know, having long form conversations. And usually the critique is just framed in terms of the fact that, like, you know, that traditional sort of legacy media is very soundbite driven and is like, you know, um, 
you know, isn't really given to providing a lot of like depth of analysis of important issues, you know, like it gives you a very brief kind of superficial treatment of them. One of the reasons why I like Vox is that they're pretty good about like giving you more detailed explanations of things, you know, rather than just giving you the superficial stuff. And so I guess, you know, from your point of view, um, do you think there's a way in which the traditional sort of like legacy media conglomerates, ABC, NBC, you know, CBS, Fox, all, all those things like that, um, is there a way in which it's possible for any of those organizations, like given the structure that they have to sort of like rescue um, like depth and substance, which they sort of currently lack to a large degree. I mean, not entirely, but I don't know. Um, that's something I do. Yeah, that's something I do think about a lot, and I'm sure I have read like, like more precise like solutions or ways of of reforming that structure that would kind of improve the incentives they have to, so that that way they're more uh, they have a this incentive structure that would promote more healthy discourse and more that feels more productive and meaningful um i don't remember what it is off the top of my head so i have to look it up and get back to you on that and i'm, I'm glad you asked that something I, I do think is very important and interesting to talk about mm-hmm. and, and just glad taking that direction is to focusing more on the incentives that they operate under and the structure the constraints that their system is working under that instead of focusing more on kind of this um moralistic view that they're driven driven by negative by negative values that mm-hmm. try to make assumptions about their own individual motivations and about the system itself um kind of thing i have found very enlightening um oh yeah have you ever did you ever um listen to those two podcasts i sent you from ezra Klein's uh, show about where he discusses media and and the issues it has operating in the in the state in the modern era no i didn't get a chance i think if i remember correctly i opened them up and i thought there was a full transcript but then i there wasn't and it was just the so then i didn't get around to actually listening to the whole episode i need to do that though because that is at least before the next time we chat i can i'll do that because then we can talk more about like those issues in detail um you know because i'll have more background info so that's next at least as far as like on my list before the next time we talk uh, i'll go back and listen to those podcasts yeah um it's been easier ironically enough for me to read lately than it has been to listen which is somewhat bizarre but, yeah you know just how it is because you're, um, you're not as mobile well yeah i mean that's probably the main thing because you know i would always listen on the go like you know i always had my headphones with me and you know i you know while i was driving in particular you know i it's funny i i will say that's the one thing i missed the most i think i already said this but that's the thing i missed the most about that delivery job i had like and when i had that job i was super informed because i just listened to podcasts all day (laughs) you know eight hours a day and then i'd come home and i'd have free time after that where i'd listen to more podcasts (laughs) you know yeah it was quite the time um so i do i do miss that a little bit um uh i will say sort of 
you know, for as we approach the end of the conversation, I wanted to thank you again. Well, there's two things, two other things you sent me I want to talk about in uh, more detail, but we may only have time to get to one of them fully. Um, by, by the way, I really just real quick. I just want yeah. to thank you for taking the initiative to get off your tangent before I had to do that for you. <laughs> yes. You, well, okay. <laughs> Thank you for the thank you for the honesty. Because <laughs> um, yeah, I was about to go somewhere and then I stopped myself. So <laughs> um, yeah, no. So there's uh, the climate change article, you know, which I mentioned a little bit earlier. So the two different tactics, right? You have the energizing the intensity of young people. Um, versus the, you know, increasing bipartisan, you know, widespread appeal, um, you know, you know, for, for climate change as opposed to just energizing young people to only vote Democrat. Um, I really thought that was very interesting. I didn't actually really realize how much John Kerry was, I knew John Kerry was involved in climate change activism, but I didn't realize how significant his involvement was. Um, you know, I think I definitely have a bias towards John Kerry's style of activism. And I have an, uh, a negative bias against the energizing uh, young people strategy and only electing Democratic politicians, uh, you know, to support that. Um, that being said, I think there are merits to both. And I agree with the thesis that the author makes, which is that both approaches can coexist and can be complementary to one another. Um, and so I want to say I appreciate the article because I thought it was interesting. And, you know, I just want to say I definitely agreed with that part of the thesis, that those are complementary approaches. And to some degree, I think they're necessary. I don't think you can, like, I think in any activist movement, you have the policy wants and the political elites who do a lot of the behind the scenes stuff, but you also need to have the young, excited and energized people, um, you know, who are pushing on the ground. And I think that's true of pretty much any political movement that's trying to affect a pretty radical change in a, in a society like ours. Um, you know, I, I would say maybe perhaps as an outsider who's not a political activist, my concern would probably be just that I worry that there may be some antagonism between those two camps, um, that there may, that, that probably would be counterproductive. Like that, that concerns me more than anything. Like, I worry that the, you know, if the camp of young, energetic activists becomes too too radicalized, it will become difficult for them, you know, to work together appropriately when it's necessary. The policy wants and the political elites, you know, who are doing a lot of the deals, political deals behind the show, you might say, to, to you know, um, get the activism done. Um, so, you know, um, you know, I did think the, you know, and the critiques were interesting. You know, I, I definitely think just education and engagement alone clearly isn't enough based on what we've seen, you know, no matter how much you talk about it, you know, that in and of itself won't necessarily get people behind your, you know, behind you. Like, you know, even if you make it very clear, the world's falling apart and everything's on fire, you know, people really have to, you know, kind of get caught up in the energy of the movement for, for change to happen. So I just wanted to say I really appreciated that article um, and thought it was really fascinating. Well, I think were so. there 
Were there any other uh, things you wanted to add to that? Um, I'm sure. Um, I just think back to this point I heard. Uh, I read that. I don't know if was a truth, but I, I think it's probably a lot. Yeah, I really wish that was a Why? Why a lot of times, even the look. Can you talk a little bit louder? You're just yes. a little distant. Yeah, of course. Okay, there we go. I can hear you. Even though, like, left to center policies are immensely popular on average in the U.S., why they, they struggle? Left, why left, why left to center political figures struggle to translate those sentiments into real policy making? Is the because the is that there's a lot of constraints on the way you actually mobilize people power in the country that one people don't really appreciate. Um, that we we know that obviously there's some really obvious ones like the electoral college um, and the senate given like a um, ad- advantage to rural sparsely populated states that tend to be solidly fed uh, but th- those are obvious and we know that but there's another one that isn't as obvious it's been more informal is that just the way that they're organized is that because the party has to work in a very coalitional way between different interest groups and so that and has it well on the other side GOP has it so that all of their base is pretty unified and that they see as all, each like liberal, supposedly liberal issue is connected to a larger threat so that they're always mobilized against them regardless of what they are so on any particular issue so issue is usually like a certain section of the Democratic Party versus the entirety of the the where they have their so and this is something the party considers that even though most people who are left here are say are supportive of various liberalish liberal causes what what have you they're usually that tendency where they're only like very actively interested in like a very particular section of it and the rest of it they're only passively interested on a, on each thing, since so only a certain section of it. So you, so that way, when they, when it comes to actually mobilizing them for like elections that aren't like there's governorships for district attorneys for a lot of midterms, a lot of things that they have, tend to be disadvantaged in is because it's their support is often very fragmented. Whereas usually they're the progressive climate people again. Of the GOP, they're progressive um, labor union people against all of the GOP, they're progr- progressive and gun control people against all of the GOP, it's just how often it's fragmented and and it's they often struggle to like really mobilize them in a disciplined way, the way the right has over time. And oh, and recently they're starting to become more savvy to that and learning kind of. That's a major reason why I kind of don't have a lot of respect for the Sunrise Movement, just to kind of tend to be like fairly left center, but may only be passively interested in those climate issues, have the same urgency on those issues as they have for their own particular interest, and so to have that way they're more way the whole most that way most of the left could be more disciplined in the way they mobilize their base to to, to obtain political power within the constraints of the system that are already there 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I'm glad you brought that up. Um, because it's something, you know, a lot of people in the political space have talked about as an issue, you know, in terms of, you know, left versus right. Um, you know, uh, as far as like, you know, the right being much more capable of uh, rallying or uniting, you know, as a whole around a given set of ideas or a, a given person, you know, than the left is because of that fragmentation, uh, you know. And so, you know, just, you know, the homogeneity, I guess, right, is the, of the Republican Party relative to the Democratic Party. So I think that's definitely really important and interesting. Um, the last thing I, I wanted to bring up um, before we uh, end our conversation is I'm I'm also I'm grateful again that you shared the uh, this is one we talked about before but I, I'm glad you shared it again is the how mediocrity um, will destroy your life um, article from Cracked uh, or quietly destroy us all I guess is the title um, I, I actually bookmarked it. Um, because I think this is something I'm going to want to come back to and reread again. Um, you know, every once in a while. It's one of the things where I, I really like this piece a lot. And, and we talked about that the first time you shared it with me. I, I can't remember exactly when that was, but it was sometime, maybe a couple of years ago, maybe three or four years ago. I don't remember exactly when, but um, I just wanted to thank you for sharing it again. And, you know, because I think it's a beautiful and very thoughtful reminder that, you know, sins of omission frequently do much more damage than sins of commission in ways that are quite insidious. And they're insidious precisely because we don't see them. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's very powerful. And it's powerful because I think we habitually are um, disattuned to the way in which our relaxation of personal ethical standards, um, you know, pre, like, I guess predisposes us um, towards uh, limitations and vices that, you know, um, are, are quite harmful in ways we don't understand. One of the things for me that I probably have appreciated the most about the stuff Jordan Peterson puts online, you know, from a self-development perspective is he frequently, you know, in his lectures talks about the value of, you know, incremental improvement. You know, like if you think to yourself, you know, what is something I do every day that I can make uh, 1% better today than it was yesterday. And you do it and you keep doing that over time. In a year, you'll have a life that's so much better than your current life, it'll be almost unrecognizable to you because of the value of incremental improvement. And, you know, I, I would say um, this article is sort of bringing attention to the destruction or the um, what, what's the term for it? The, de- the degeneration of, of the uh, same pattern, but in the opposite direction. 
you know, where how much worse things can get if just every day it's, you know, negative 1% less better than it was the day before, right? You know, and I think the same principle applies in that direction as it does, you know, in the opposite direction. Um, for me, it's very powerful. Um, and, and, so, and it's motivating to some degree because, you know, I frequently, you know, given that I struggle with my mental health, you know, as a consequence of, you know, some unfortunate events, um, you know, I frequently find myself, you know, in a position where I feel like I don't have the energy to do all the things I want to do. Um, and it can be very easy at times to sort of just take it easy, so to speak, and just to say, oh, well, you know, this thing is no big deal, or I can skip out on that, or, you know, I can avoid doing this one thing because I'm really tired or I've worked really hard. And, you know, to some degree, you have to be able to navigate that intelligently because you do need rest and relaxation and rejuvenation. But, you know, that can be a very slippery slope into sort of decadence. I think this article is a powerful reminder you know, that it's important to think very carefully about that and to resist it when you can, um, you know, and to, to fight back against, you know, the desire to just sort of be mediocre, you know, um, you know, because it's easy. So I, I wanted to thank you for sharing it and let you know that it's much appreciated. I have it in my bookmarks now, so I can reference it in the future. Because um, I think this is the kind of piece that ought to be returned to and reread. And I'm really, I'm really you glad. Any other final thoughts? Um, yeah, I'm just really glad to resonate with you as much as you did. That uh, doesn't mean a lot that hasn't been done. Uh, honestly, I just one really, I always wondered if maybe it would have made more sense to replace me with just complacency. Say it one more time. I heard complacency, but I didn't hear the first part. What if it made more sense to replace in the entitled complacency? What about complacency? I, I'm still. You said something about making more sense and complacency. Doctrine in the title. Oh, oh, I get it. Okay, sorry. Yeah, I just was mishearing you. The word replace. Yeah, I, I don't know. That's that is interesting. Complacency definitely seems to get more into the spirit of what the article is talking about, the mediocrity. You know, but well, I think because mediocrity as an adjective implies like a quality that is more permanent about a person or a position or a state, right? Like you say this person is mediocre the implication there's more of a permanency in that implication like that's who the person just is as a person and always has been and probably always will be whereas complacency is more of a temporary state that you can fall into you know even if you're usually a very exceptional person you know so i, I i'm with you there i, I actually see a, a good argument for that at least that's kind of how, how it looks to me mm -hmm. Um, yeah. So, um, so I, go ahead. I'm just texting you a link right now. I'll probably send you some other stuff I find interesting, but this is from Jonathan Pazzo. 
he uh, did an interesting analysis of COVID-19 from a symbolic perspective. And he talked about the symbolism of masks um, being worn everywhere. Um, so it's not a public health thing. It's more of a symbolic, you know, analysis of a socio-political, you know, health event. Um, and he talked about masks and veils. And it was very interesting, uh, had a very interesting take on it. Um, so this is stuff I've been consuming a lot. And so perhaps the next time we talk, we can talk about the media um, in more detail. I'll listen to the Ezra Klein podcasts. Um, and then maybe we can talk a little bit about symbolism, um, you know, and uh, some other things. Um, but I just want to thank you for tonight's conversation. This was really fun. And, um, you know, I really enjoyed getting to dive into some of these pieces with you. So, and then I'm also going to write you an email response for the uh, 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 thing you sent me this morning uh, about Eric Weinstein and the IDW. Um, I think you made a lot of good points there. It's worthy of a longer response, longer response than I would okay. want to give over over the phone. Okay. I appreciate Does it. Does that sound good? Of course. Yeah, definitely. Anything else you wanted to any closing thought <laughs> before we head out? Uh, uh, I'm sure I'm trying to think. Uh, what else have I shared with you, Lane? That may, may not have um, gone to. You shared a factory farms thing that you wanted me to send to Abigail. Just talking about like um, Cory Booker and Elizabeth Warren, you know, with their new bill, you know, in regards to the factory farms. You also sent me um, the video. It was like about cancel culture. It was an article about cancel culture and like woke capitalism, basically the way the cancel culture is driven by capitalism. Um, I scrolled oh, yeah, back the, to that, that, our, one, that, that was that wall capital. Oh yeah, I remember that. That that was one I yeah. really wish we could have. Well, that was that would have been that that would have been really interesting though. I did, yeah, I, I did read it. I did like it. Um, I, Ross Doatat, I think, is the person referenced to coin the term woke capitalism, which is a term I love and I had heard previously before. Um, I think there's another person named Clay. Routledge, who has a somewhat popular tweet where he says something like, woke capitalism is when uh, companies pretend to care about issues they don't care about in order to get money from people who are also pretending to care about issues they don't really care about to look good in front of their friends or something like that. You know, like it was a tweet that ended up being like really viral and you know, I thought it was a pretty amusing cultural critique. Um, but the thing that I thought was most interesting, so I'll go a couple of minutes over just because I think it's worth it. The thing I thought was most interesting about that article is the connection between the institutional failure and the court of public opinion, which ultimately had to take place in order to get justice in a variety of cases in which the institutions failed. And I thought this was especially relevant in relationship to, um, you know, uh, the current, you know, civil unrest in the country regarding, uh, you know, racial injustice, right? You know, you had the George Floyd case, and you can pretty much guarantee that if there had not been a public outcry, that the officers involved would have never been charged for the death of George Floyd. Um, 
you know, it seems very, very likely that that would have been the case. Um, you know, and even though there's been an enormous outcry in the Breonna Taylor case, the officers in that shooting still haven't been charged. You know, although I think there is uh, an investigation sort of pending there, so maybe they will be. But, um, you know, there's a, a double-edged sword here because on the one hand, the court of public opinion in a lot of ways is not better than... Uh, what?